Disciples podcast powered by Awana. I'm Ross Cochran, the host of this podcast, and it's really nice to meet you. I hope you understand right from the beginning, you being here is an answer to prayer. Not just for me personally, but for all of us here at Awana, because we want to engage as many people as possible in the conversation around effective child discipleship. In the interest of transparency, I should tell you that I'm relatively new to Awana, but I hope you hear in this episode and hopefully the many episodes to follow that I'm really humbled to have a small part in the amazing things that God is doing in his kingdom through this organization. Now that all might sound like weird or churchy language, but I hope you give us the opportunity to show you just how genuinely we believe in the importance of equipping today's kids to be tomorrow's leaders inside and outside the church. This podcast is coming alongside the latest book from Moana, Resilient, Child Discipleship and the Fearless Future of the Church. Whether you read the book or not, although I hope you do read the book, I hope you continue to join us in these conversations. So hit that subscribe button right now, wherever you're listening to this, so you don't miss an episode. And if you take the time to rate and review this podcast, that will help others discover the show. But today you'll hear my conversation with Valerie Bell, Awana CEO. Fair warning, this podcast is a little bit longer than the average episode. Each of these should only take up about 30 minutes of your time. Thank you again for listening. And here we go with episode one, Valerie Bell. I'm so glad to have you here. It is a privilege to be able to talk to you. Um, I feel compelled to say, like, you know, thanks for letting me work here. Absolutely. Um, you know, this is a bit of a... How many days is it now? Uh, I think it's 11 as we record. Uh, so survivor. I feel like this is a performance review of sorts. No. Um, but I'm really, really excited to engage in this conversation with you. One of the things that has been so apparent to me from the moment I started talking um, to people from Juana is there is a... There's a level of joy and optimism here. Oh, lovely. That I don't <laughs> see in in a lot of places, you know, frankly, even in the kingdom. And especially in this cultural moment that we're in where things like cynicism and just pessimism are so easy to find. Yeah. The fact that there's so much joy and like love here uh, is really, really refreshing. It's so neat to hear you say that because we sense that. <laughs> I, I think it's something that God did, yeah. you know, um, he brought us together in ways that were pretty unique, and we've gone through a lot together. Yeah. And so there's a lot of real empathy and care for each other. It's mm-hmm. I think we could call it love, but I think it's more than human love. I really think that God has poured himself out here a little bit mm-hmm. of late. And uh, so it is an exciting time to be at Awana, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here probably as unlikely a person to be the CEO as you could think of. <laughs> I want to talk all about that. Let's get right into that, but amen to that. This podcast is built around Resilient Disciples, which is sort of this new framing, this new ecosystem that Awana is embarking on. It's a book. It's a wonderful book uh, that people can actually get as they're listening to this. You can go to resilientdisciples.com for more information on that. But I want to start, I want to start much further back than that. One of the things that's been so cool for me is seeing all you guys from the leadership to uh, the random employees that I've been introduced to, whose names I'm trying to remember um, this early <laughs> in my employment, that you guys really care about child discipleship. And it is not that sort of stereotypical, like, oh, that's the thing that's happening down the hallway kind of attitude that you see sometimes in some churches. This is so vitally important. But I want to talk about you, where when you were growing up, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like, when did this start for you? When did God, like, first bring this up for you? Well, you know, I was kind of wondering if you remember when the first thing you wanted to be. Uh, how old were you? Uh, let's see. Uh, the first thing I wanted to be was a uh, professional baseball player. Yeah. Because I saw that um, 
baseball players came in all shapes and sizes. Yes. And as a kid, that felt like that's a that's an athlete that could be. <laughs> and how old were you? Uh, I was probably seven or eight, and then I was probably eleven when I started going. Oh, you have to like be good at it. <laughs> They don't, they don't just let you be a baseball player. You have to be more than cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's I didn't know about radio, that people could have a profession in radio when I picked my first profession. Okay. Well, what did and you want to be? There was a guidance counselor who okay. came to our school in sixth grade. Okay. And she asked all of us what we wanted to be when we yeah. grew up. And I told her that I wanted to be a lawyer for kids. Wow. <laughs> and she said to me, honey, there is no such thing as a oh, lawyer no. for kids. Oh, this, no. <laughs> no, this was, and she was right. There wasn't. I was expecting that to be, you know, and then she walked me into her office and said, <laughs> no. here's this flyer and start your life, Valerie. And that wasn't all. The look on her face was like, what planet are you living oh, on? Why no. would kids need a lawyer? Wow. So, you know, I didn't know that you could maybe skip the attorney part and be the advocate, two Four A kids. words, you know, yeah. an advocate. And uh, I I began to realize pretty early on that I would take up the boxing gloves for a child in need. Mm. Um, that is often the position uh, for people who God's asked to do the speaking for people who can't get behind a radio microphone mm. and talk about what's happening to them. Um, so... Uh, and the way it worked out in my life, I was doing radio and a publisher came to me, an acquisitions editor, which wouldn't I love that if that uh, happened yeah, today? You know? Absolutely. I'm like 35 years old. <laughs> and he said, you know, you have a word gift. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Oh. And I said, Mm, absolutely not. <laughs> I don't need that in my life. Even then you knew what I'm writing a book entails. I don't want to write a book. He said, you really should think about it. If you were to write a book, what would you write about? That's a, first of all, that's a good, that's a good uh, acquisitions editor trying so, to tease it out of you. I'm 35. I've got, you know, a house full of my kids uh -huh. and everybody else's kids. And I knew that something was happening different at this house though. Mm. And, um, I'd, I'd had quite a struggle with God over what was happening at my house because there were 25 kids under 12 years old. Um, I was the stay-at-home mom. I mm -hmm. was the house of choice, even though I was the strictest mom on the block. <laughs> I wasn't even nice to them. I wasn't. <laughs> I'm thinking, why are they here? And your sons are like, no, seriously, why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> no, my sons, I thought they were going to grow up and be social directors on cruise ships. You know, That's it's like hilarious. they couldn't get enough kids. And, yeah. uh, and so uh, I, I'd had a dream, and I had wanted another child. And in this dream, I thought I had God's ear. You know, please excuse me if this doesn't completely match your theology. Of course. You know, um, but to me, it was significant. And in this dream, uh, I said to God, you know, I really want another child. These two boys are nice, but you know I need something wrapped in a pink blanket. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said to me, Valerie, have you looked on your front porch lately? Mm. And so still dreaming, I run to the front door. I think there is going to be, be a, a basket pink. with yeah. a little pink, pink blankie in yeah. there, the little girl. And a stork flying away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there isn't. Um, there's the back of the head of a little dark-haired boy. Mm. And I said to God, rats. <laughs> <laughs> that little boy, he's here all the time. Wow. And his mother was even more difficult than he is. Sure. And God said in this dream, well, why don't you ask him in? Mm. 
And I knew why I hadn't asked him in. I didn't want him. Mm -hmm. And so I asked him in. I'm still dreaming this. And I had this sense of new mother joy. I literally woke up crying because it was so right that I had let this boy into our family and into our lives. Oh, my goodness. And so that was the beginning of a journey for me to see these children 25 under 12 years old as more than a challenge to my daily life, but to realize that our family was the closest thing that they had to real security and a place that it was safe and a lot of other things I could say. But it it opened my eyes up to, um, you know, kids who look normal, but underneath the skin, everything's not normal. Mm. And so uh, I I took what I thought was a lot of money from this editor. (laughs) I had never even written an article. How crazy was I? Well, oh, wow. No, I had never written anything. Okay. And so I signed the contract for this book. It became a book called Nobody's Children. It was about my neighborhood kids. They all could have sued me. I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) But um, I cried and I wrote for six months. And I, um, when it was done, I thought, that's the best thing I've ever done in my life. That's so good. That's the most important thing I've ever done in my life. So that was, let me see, I'm counting out how old I am. That's when I was 35. <laughs> that was. I'll um, speed this part up yeah, in the post. <laughs> that was <coughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah, that was decades ago. Wow. And uh, in uh, many different ways, I've been on that same path. Mm. I feel like um, one of the things that was most impressive to me about the book in particular, was that it was not, uh, it had a tone of optimism. It, it had a tone of, of acknowledging the world. I think it's a lot of kingdom content, for lack of a better term, uh, will do, will make one of two mistakes. It'll either be so pessimistic about like the world is so terrible and we're just trying to exist and it's so hard yeah. right now, or it'll ignore the real struggles that people face mm-hmm. and it'll be too insular to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the book and what a lot of the conversations that I hear around Awana right now are, are finding that middle path. Mm. How did you guys in the writing of the process, you know, I'm curious too, just how this writing process was different for you than your previous books. Somebody who's wrote zero books. The idea of writing with three other people seems uh, particularly <laughs> fascinating. Um, like how you guys were able to find that tone so consistently throughout the book. So uh, we had begun to, look at what was happening in the world. And I recognize that although there was a lot of information and a lot of analysis, most of it really existed in silos. Okay. It wasn't put together in a way that we could have a picture of the whole scenario. Mm. And so we would get, you know, uh, information on family or we'd get information on you know church closings we get all of this was all over the place and it began to kind of come together as a strong picture of reality um, that we have enormous seismic changes that are happening and in the people they hope they happen to with the strongest drastic most uh uh, consequences are children. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's also, I would, I would characterize this book as a love letter to the church. Hmm. And our great hope is not just that children will survive their childhoods, but that they will be trained to be leaders, mm-hmm. 
that they will be trained to be resilient in a culture that they don't just hide from or are buried or silenced in, Mm -hmm. but that they are engaged in, Mm -hmm. and that when they get knocked down, they know how to get back up. Yeah. Uh, They know how to to, uh, not let their voice, their Christian moral conscience, go out of this culture. Mm -hmm. And so, you know... As we worked with that, we began to think, wouldn't this be amazing if instead of just putting a period on it and saying, ah, give it up, it's post-Christian, you know, get, yeah. start building your arcs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what, if, what if we started to share what we felt? And even though we don't have all the answers, we are the first to admit that. Mm-hmm. I think we can convene a conversation that we have never had in the history of the church yeah. where we can bring all of these people who are advocates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may not have a job working in Kidmin. They may not be on a pastoral staff working with kids or teenagers, but they're listening to me today and something is happening to them because they want to be a part of advocating for kids and for kids' future. What if we brought all of those people together? Uh, What if we found this modern-day tribe of Issachar? Do you know who Issachar was? I'm so glad. I'd love to to educate. (laughs) That's very clear. Issachar is from the Old Testament when uh, David was um, fighting Saul. Okay. And he had won the hearts of the people, Mm -hmm. but Saul was still alive. so, So David's hiding in the wilderness, but all of these tribes and leaders are starting to come to him. So mm-hmm. the Old Testament talks about, you know, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe, and that's basically what it says with how many people were in the tribe. But when it comes to Issachar, it's said about him, and the men of Issachar who knew the times, who understood the times and knew what to do. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So. A lot of people, I think, understand the times. There's, you know, we've got the Barnas, we've yeah. got uh, Ed Stetzer, and I'm so thankful for them. What I'm looking for are the ones who are the leaders who, yeah, get the times, but know what, what to, do. to do. That's so good. That's where I want to spend my efforts now. Yeah. And that's where Awana is going to be spending its efforts. We want to bring together the best minds who want to talk about this and see if we can't come up with a plan to help this generation of kids who need more um, kind of concierge mm-hmm. uh, disciple making than any generation before them. Yeah. So you, the book talks a lot about the church of the year 2050. Yes. And one of the things that strikes me about this book is it feels like this book is coming into the church, coming into uh, where we are at today at the exact right time. Oh, to wow. sort of raise an alarm bell that, you know, we need to take this this seriously. And it can't just be this thing that's relegated to, I think you said, the children's wing, right? That it needs to be the revival. It's not coming. about the children's wing anymore. Yeah. It's actually the most strategic, important conversation we need to be having. This is about what's going to happen to faith and not just in the states, but in the world. And so I'd, I'd like to redirect some of the dialogue that we're having. I'd like to redirect some of the conversations that we're having and challenge us to think what is the most strategic conversation that we could be involved in. And there is nothing more important than the discipleship, the resilient discipleship of this generation of kids. Those grandkids that you have, um, 
the children that you see running around at the church, they're going to have to bear the burden of leadership in a church that will probably be marginalized, whose voice they will try to silence and bury. Um, They're going to need special strength, special training to be able to negotiate that. The upside to me is that we... uh, will recognize that there is uh, there are a lot of things that are coming after our kids. Mm. That's true. But that we can help them find their identity in Jesus, mm-hmm. that we can help them place their allegiance in the church and uh, put them uh, train them to be in places of influence. All of the places where there is voice yep. uh, are the places where our children could potentially uh, speak their allegiance and thrive and um, be the moral conscience of this country. So good. So, you know, there's a picture of the church if we don't do this. But think of this country if Ooh. the moral conscience leaves in the next 30 years. Yeah. What will that be like? No one will want to live here if that's what happens. Absolutely not. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. We are so excited to introduce Bright, a new digital weekend curriculum for kids and students created by and for children's ministry leaders. Bright is biblically based and jam-packed with easy-to-use lessons, helpful training videos, digital media, large and small group resources, and so much more. Bright is the perfect solution to pair the gospel truth with engaging content for children and leaders alike. Our prayer is that Bright would help kids navigate real-life challenges. We believe the future of the church is bright. Download a free four-week sample of the Bright curriculum today at resilientdisciples.com. Thankfully, this conversation is ended. Thankfully, we are we are uh, working on this right now. And I'm curious, you know, in the prepping of the book and all of the research and all of the work that you guys put into it, uh, the book describes sort of this like these mountain range of issues that are facing today's kids. Um, I believe the three that it sort of focuses on are uh, the downfall of the family, downfall of the church, and technology. Those are those are big mountains that are facing these yes. kids that are coming in on, and coming in on our kids right now. What gives you the most hope? Like what is fueling that optimism right now as you are maybe at the foot of that mountain? Because I would imagine that a lot of the people who are listening to this right now are seeing those mountains in those kids that are in their Awana clubs or mm-hmm. are in their lives or mm-hmm. are part of the 25 yeah. that are just in their house. Yeah. So um, in the book, we call for a strategy Okay. to recognize where we are and then have a strategy where we come together. And uh, for instance, technology. Technology is neutral. But it has come with such a tsunami of secular thought right into the palms of our kids' hands. Uh, that that's a, all of that should our be kids crocheted on a pillow. Tsunami of <laughs> secular thought. <laughs> all of our kids are, to one degree or another, screen disciples. Mm. They go to the internet to find out how to think, how to feel, you know, who their tribe is. But think if that was redeemable. Mm. Think if we thought about putting our money into developing the screen for Christian discipleship. Yeah. What would that be like? It would be amazing. It would be countercultural to what's happening there now. There would yep. be an alternative for kids who, who love the technology 
but are not uh, able to access a whole lot more than just um, secular culture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, times have changed so much. When I was growing up, secular culture was out there. I was this Baptist girl, and, you know, we didn't dance. (laughs) 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 That our parents knew about. No, I didn't Ah, dance. (laughs) Uh, You know, we didn't uh, smoke. We didn't go to movies. What I'm trying to say is the secular culture was out there. Yep. Now it's, like I said, it's in our homes and it's in, in our, our pockets. kids' hands. It's in our pockets. Yeah. And uh, there, there's, we've had it long enough now that we have real warning signs about it. The, mm. um, since 2012, there's been a plummet in uh, mental and emotional well-being in teenagers with the highest plummet occurring in kids' lives who are uh, screen users, the mm. highest level of screen users. I'm curious, you know, a lot of people who are going to wind up listening to this are people who... Uh, probably have kids in their lives who they're probably anxious about, who they may even be having uh, dreams about um, and wondering what their future is going to hold. A lot of the reason why I'm here is I was in California and having a ton of anxiety over what it was going to be like to raise my kids to know and love Jesus. Mm. Uh, and then Kevin Orris was like, hey, do you want to work on Awana? I'm curious what you say to that particular person, for the person who this is such a source of anxiety in their lives. When I speak on this, I show a picture of one of my grandchildren who is extremely eccentric and charming. And he's, he heard us say, we're going to dress up for Thanksgiving. And so his mom and I said that to each other. He came dressed in goggles and (laughs) uh, winter gloves and barefoot. And I can't remember what else. He thought it was like Halloween, you know. That's so good. I so love that child. Yeah. And, and we should say he's 18. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, and I asked the parent, I asked the crowd there, uh, how many of you have a child that you could put up on the screen and tell stories about almost all their hands sure. up? And then I say, and how many of you are worried about their future? Keep your hand up and raise your other hand. Yeah. And you see a whole auditorium of double raised hands. And I see those hands as reaching for God. Mm. You know, we're reaching for God to come and help us. I understand that worry. And it's part of what motivated me to come back to Awana, what motivated, what motivated me to write this uh, book. I, I believe uh, so strongly in God's love for children. Yeah, It's not just for our children here in the States, but, you know, one of the things I did a radio view, an interview after the Parkland shootings and... Uh, I found myself saying uh, radical love could have saved Nicholas Cruz. He was the shooter. And then I thought, oh, do I really believe that? Do I mean, you know, the words came out. And then I thought, do I actually think that's possible? Uh And uh, and then it it got picked up and I saw that everywhere. They were (laughs) quoting me. And I had to examine my heart. Do I believe that the church can love in such a way I believe that, you know, in clubs like Awana or Orange or some of the other children's ministries, um, if we understand that we are there as the the hands and feet of Jesus in a sense, that this is a holy work that we're doing, I always say I hate the word volunteer. It, it, you know, it comes from, I think it's the Latin volute, which means your will. So it means if I want, to I'll be here, but maybe there'll be something better to do. Oh well, it's kind of a weak uh, word to yeah. describe what needs to be happening with children. They tell us that the presence of a loving, caring adult is the most important thing in children's lives. 
that it can mitigate all the other circumstances. And I don't know what the circumstances were for a child like Nicholas Cruz, mm-hmm. but I have enough examples, and you'll read them in the book, of kids who had every reason to turn out bad. Yep. And because of the church, because there was the presence of, the, of a loving, caring adult, it turned out just the opposite. So I, I think we have a lot of untapped power. You know, we're not going to have volunteers, I hope, anymore. We're going to have leaders. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to have generational guardians. Think uh-huh. of this. People who would stay with the child would be dedicated to a, a particular child, a group of children throughout their childhoods, throughout their high school. When they go to college, they're yep. getting notes from home. When they get married, that person's there in the, you know, who, who has that connection with them for life. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a generation of kids who 50% of them are going to be in broken homes during mm-hmm. their childhoods, um, the church has a tremendous opportunity to be family. Yep. And that's radical love. We know how to do that. We can do yeah, that. Absolutely. And I think like the book talks about belong, believe, become. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that I found most encouraging in reading it was that it stresses the importance of belonging. It stresses that, you know, and that's not like, that's not just a church thing. Yes. It has a bu- bunch of biblical yes. basis, but that's just a thing thing. Yes. And children in particular are longing and crying out for a place to belong, a place to be in the presence of a loving, caring mm-hmm. adult. You know, my wife and I are foster parents. So mm. you are, you know, you are speaking my language here. Wow. Um, but I think that's to me, one of the most encouraging things to that, you know, somewhat burned out volunteer, no longer volunteer burnout <laughs> leader is that, you know, the things you already know how to do, love that child. Well, be show up for that child. Um, the things that you've done with your own children yeah. and you can do for the children who's in your ministry. Or even might be that little dark haired boy. I started the talking little about, boy. you don't really yeah. like him that much and he doesn't like you either, <laughs> 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 but he's in your life. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that kid has chosen you or yes. chosen your church. Absolutely. I'm so fascinated with this fostering. Sure. How long you been doing it? Uh, a little over two years. What a journey that must be. It is. Yeah, um, we are. Do you have natural children? Yeah, so yeah. I've uh, yeah, so we is that we, what we call them? Yeah, birth, <laughs> birth, ch- birth children, children, bio children, bio uh, children. Yeah, our uh, kids who will grow up with my uh, with uh, my chin. Future um, radio kids. Future radio kids. Yeah. So uh, no, so I have a four year old and a four month old. So my wife and I, uh, my wife's a nurse, and uh, I was always concerned that she would come home or like I would come home from work, and there are kids in my house who like I just didn't know. She'd be like, don't ask questions. We're moving to Canada. Um, and because she would see the system and see the level of just like brokenness. You know stacked what? She's on brokenness. an advocate. Yeah. She has that. hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, so we, we said yes. Um, and then very quickly found out that we were going to be expecting um, our son. So uh, I actually, I hardly ever use the phrase we are expecting. Um, Cause <laughs> you're the most honest man I know. <laughs> So I'm going to edit that out probably, but, uh, no, leave it in there. No. Yeah. So we, uh, was this your four, is this your older child? This was in between two children. So, you know, said we're going to do this foster care thing and then realize that the way we can serve the system right now is by being respite placements. Um, so rest replace respite respite. Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard of it. So we, for example, we had an eight week old who was in her home and he had been moved eight times in eight weeks. Mm. And you just see, I mean, you think about the development, Breaks a child's does, trust. Right? Yeah, the trauma that yeah. trauma compounds trauma in that yeah. regard, right? We're not going to adopt them. That was clear f- mm-hmm. uh, for a bunch of different reasons. But like we were told our kids were like, you're not moving them. 
he's staying with us until you know that he's going to go to a place uh, where, he that, can stay. where he can stay. And wow. uh, so it was going to be two days and then it turned into 10. And But it was, it was 10 days of a baby. You can do anything for 10 days. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, again, to bring it back to this conversation, that's the thing that I think is one of the most encouraging things to me about the book and about this conversation is that the things that are, that God is going to do the most good in can often be what seem like the simplest things. Yeah. People can be like, Oh, like I don't have a Bible degree. I don't, I don't know what kid men best mm-hmm. practices are. <laughs> right. But it's like, you know, but you know how to open up your home. Yeah. You know how to reach out and grab and help that child. It's, it's hard. And one the way the system gets changed is pe- parents like us who have privilege, who have resources step up to sort of redirect that privilege. It's mm-hmm. my wife's phrase. Um, to kids who don't have a different option because yeah. I have a church, I have, you know, friends, um, I have therapists, right? Like I have all these resources and adults who absorb the body blows that come with foster care. Like mm. these kids don't have a different option. And then you think about the breakdown of family and how that permeates into the world. So you think about, you know, my own children who are going to grow up in, oh, Lord willing, in a loving you know, home yes. who can develop their own relationship with Jesus, mm-hmm. who are then going to have their peers who are going to have even more drastically different experiences than my peers had. Mm-hmm. This this may happen, may not happen, but you may find yourself having to raise the whole group of them. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hope so. Honestly, yeah. when I was able to learn more about your story in, in that group in particular, that is something that I desire for my wife and I. I do think that being an advocate for a child is obviously one of the most rewarding things you can do wow. because you can see the lifelong. You change a life. Yeah. To borrow a quote from Dave Ramsey, you change a family tree. Mm. Right. And yeah. I think, I think that's something that too, that by doing this type of ministry effectively, not only are you impacting this child's life, but you then are providing this child a, a different signpost that when yeah. the rest of the world is saying no to them, they can know that you've said yes to them. It's beautiful. And I think, that is what these people here are like. That is what I think people in kids ministry generally tend to be oh, some of the, some of the better people in the, in the church. I, I agree. <laughs> Especially, you know, Awana has been around 70 years. You yeah. know, I meet people all the time who have been leaders uh, for 30 years. Think of it. Yeah. Every midweek they are there. Yeah. They don't go to Florida. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're not going out to dinner with their friends. Yep. They're going where the kids are. And I always ask them, what got into you to do? Th- I mean, you know, I hold you in the highest regard, but what got into you mm-hmm. to do that? And they said uh, something usually like this. I fell in love with kids, yep. you know. Absolutely. You know, I was another thing I was thinking when you were talking about foster care and you end up you know, with your child in a group of kids and um, they become uh, part of your family. Yep. And I, I'm thinking back to that neighborhood I was describing about 25 kids under 12 years old, you know, and um, we'd been with them many years. They're in high school now when this situation happened. And I remember, I look back on this as one of the highest um compliments or sense that we were on the right path mm-hmm. um one of the girls from the high school had been killed in a car accident mm-hmm. and uh, spontaneously without anybody telling them to our neighborhood of parents showed up with their kids in our basement where everybody showed up to play all the time wow. they didn't know how to pray they were shaken up they didn't know how to help their kids And they came over, and we put the kids in the center and put our arms around each other. And Steve, my husband, prayed. Mm. 
And I thought that's a picture of the church. Yeah. It's the, the lighthouse. Even when you think you're blowing it, you know, and you're the strictest parents and, <laughs> you know, it, there's issues and things happen. Yeah. There's going to be things happen when you engage, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that night I look back on it and I think that's really the proudest moment I think we had as a family in ministry together. That's so good. Yeah. In putting together a book, I imagine there's a lot of things that wind up sort of uh, on the cutting room floor, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. A lot of things that you you know you'll you'll have to say in future books when future people are coming up to you, like, "Have you ever thought about writing another <laughs> yeah, book?" It's true. Um, is there anything that you feel like uh, that you want to be able to say to the listener or from the book that uh, you want to really make sure that they understand? Anything that they didn't? That's extra book. Yeah. Or just anything that you want to make sure that you kind of leave people with from this conversation, anything that I haven't hit necessarily in this first of many conversations because I'm going to bring you back here a lot. Maybe talk about this dream that, uh, not a dream, Reese was six and he asked me if I'd ever heard God talk to me. Wow. And I said, you mean like hear his actual voice? He said, yes. I said, no. I, I think I've sensed him talking to me in scripture and mm-hmm. other things. He said, and I said, well, have you? <laughs> and he said, I think God talked to me. I think I heard him the other night. I said, were you afraid? He said, um, I was really, really happy. Oh, that's so good. And I said, well, what did God say to you? And he said, God said, I want you to love Jesus for the rest of your life. And I heard those words and I think, and I thought, I think God wants me to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> that I need to tell this generation of children that God wants you to love him for the rest of your lives. Thanks again to Valerie for the time and the wisdom. And thank you for listening, especially all the way to the end. If you're still here, I imagine it's because you value child discipleship as much as we do. So please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast so we can bring as many people as possible into this conversation. You can now tell everyone that you were here for episode one. Before you go, I have one more thing. The word resilient means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I asked Valerie what it means to her, so here's her answer. But stay tuned, because I want you to join this conversation. But for now, once again, here's Valerie Bell. When you get offended by someone it means that you're engaged which is the first thing resilient it assumes a certain amount of engagement in a tough situation so it assumes that there's engagement that it's going to be tough you might end up on the ground you might end up uh, embarrassed or ashamed but you get back up The Resilient Disciples podcast is powered by Awana. Go to resiliendisciples.com for more information and many more of these conversations. Special thanks to Kevin Orris and Phil Wallace for making this conversation happen. I'm Ross Cochran, and we'll talk again soon.